Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all of the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. For all the news about big tech censorship, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it's all explained, including who's behind it, in my new bestseller, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. There is hope. Information is power on this topic. Get some today by reading Slanted. Today in our podcast, a top virologist working at the military base where coronavirus research is done answers a lot of questions you probably haven't heard asked and answered before. Do you sometimes watch the news and maybe they're interviewing somebody and you're thinking that they're not asking the questions that are obvious to you or the questions that you want to have asked? I know a lot of your questions about coronavirus are answered in this interview today in this podcast with the amazing Dr. John Dye, Chief of Viral Immunology and the Deputy Director of Foundational Sciences at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. Some of the things he will address in this podcast, are there changes ahead in the COVID vaccine program and types of vaccines offered? What does the vaccine's effectiveness rate really mean? Here's a hint, they're proven effective really for a matter of just a couple of months at this point, nothing more. Will vaccine immunity wear off and how fast? Are you protected between the first and second dose? What's the difference between an RNA vaccine and one that's not an RNA vaccine? Why aren't the vaccines approved for kids? Can coronavirus be spread by people who don't have any symptoms? Will the vaccines we have so far work on what they call variants, different variants of coronavirus, or on future different strains? And did COVID-19 escape from a lab experiment in China? Here's Dr. Dai speaking to me at Fort Detrick, Maryland. We help develop the diagnostic tools, which are the tests, to determine whether someone is infected with COVID. We also are responsible for developing the animal models to allow us to assess whether a vaccine or a treatment works outside of a human. And then we are also involved in testing the samples that are coming out of the humans to determine whether that vaccine or treatment is working. Have all the vaccines skipped the animal testing so far because of the emergency basis? They have not skipped them. They've been doing them in parallel. So a lot of people ask about Operation Warp Speed and how are you able to compress a five to 10 year time frame of how long it takes to develop something into 10 to 12 months. And it's not because of lack of safety. The safety profile is there. It's that they're doing everything in parallel, not sequentially. And by that, I mean, normally because of funding and money, these drug companies would develop the vaccine sequentially and they would take it and then they may kill it after a particular level and then they would move it forward. And that's why it takes so long. They're taking everything forward at the same time, which is very expensive, but it also gives us multiple shots on goal so that we can potentially have a product coming out the other side. If the vaccine is already being used in the human population, what's the point of continuing Uh, to study it in animals? What might be learned that would change anything? So what we don't know about in human population and in animal populations is what's the longevity of the vaccine? What's the duration of that immunity? What does a protective immune response of that vaccine look like? 
So we can start to dissect those problems in the animal models. We can also look at transmission. How, is he, how easy is it to pass from one animal to another, which gives us an idea of the transmission in humans as well. So there's a lot of additional information we can gain from looking at in a more controlled environment that you can't control in the real world. So is it accurate to say what you learn with the animal models could dictate changes in the vaccine program? Some people have suggested maybe you don't need two doses or maybe you can mix and match the vaccines. So they will look in the past for vaccine development. They've looked at animal data with the FDA, but they've also looked at the human data to see what the longevity of that vaccine, when the immune response starts to wane, come down the other side. But they combine that data and they look at it as one total package to then make recommendations on how the FDA should move forward. When we talk about effectiveness of the vaccines that have been approved for emergency use so far, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe one of, I don't even know what the effectiveness rate is, so maybe I shouldn't guess, but what is the effective rate that we know so far and how long does that last? So according to the literature and the reports, for the Pfizer vaccine, it's anywhere between 90 to 95%. And for the Moderna vaccine, it's 95% efficacy from the phase three clinical trials that they saw. And that number will continue to change as more and more people are vaccinated. They will continue to change and modify that efficacy based on how that moves forward in those individuals. When we say a vaccine at this stage is 90 to 95% effective, some people may take that to mean for the rest of your life or for the next 10 years, what does it really mean? Most vaccines, including this one, most likely, are not efficacious for the rest of your life. For most of the vaccines that we get, we actually get a booster every five to 10 years. Now, I don't know what the necessary booster will be for this particular virus, but it is fair to say that if we are gonna continue to develop that immunity to COVID, we're gonna need to have booster vaccinations. Right now, the vaccines last in a proven, vaccines are proven to last a period of a few months. Is that accurate? That is accurate at this point. And I think that data, as it continues to come out, as we get further out from when the people were vaccinated, will start to develop. And it's going to be a continuum. Um, not every human being is the same. Some people may need a booster shot after six months, whereas other people, depending on their immunity, may not need it for a year or two. So, But there's no reason to think at this point that suddenly after two or three months, the immunity just falls off. At this point, it's very unlikely. And then the other consideration is that if you receive the vaccine, you then potentially come into contact with the virus. And that virus actually acts as a boost to the vaccine because you're basically are building an immune response based on the vaccine to the virus. So every time you become infected again with that virus, you actually are boosting your immune response. So how does that come into play with the notion that I think there's a recommendation after we get vaccinated to still avoid exposure and wear masks and isolate? You, until we basically get this under control, you wanna limit your ability to spread the virus. And even if you get the vaccine, you potentially could spread the virus. It is possible for a very small window that you could spread the virus to other people. So you want to minimize that. But what it's doing is it's protecting the individual who receives the vaccine and you make that window as small as possible for when, you're when you are infectious to other people. When you say it's still possible to spread the virus after you get the vaccine, you don't mean that they're getting a little bit of it with the vaccine. You mean no. if they've already been exposed. If they've already been exposed. So let's say you get the vaccine and then you become in contact with the virus. 
the virus is going to enter your system and your immune response is going to clear that virus because of the vaccine that you received, but it takes a little bit of time. It's not an immediate process, so there is a short amount of time when you may be, may be infectious to other people. You want to minimize that time. What happens in the time period between the first and the second dose? Ah, great question. So when you get your first dose, you're in many of these people who have not been infected with the virus, you're seeing this protein, this spike protein for the very first time. You're developing memory cells in your body. So you have cells in your system, immune cells called B and T cells. Uh, and these cells basically generate immunity. You develop those memory cells so that they are floating around in your bloodstream. So when you come into contact with the virus or a boost, they reproduce and produce more of them and they actually develop more and more immunity as you move along. So that initial dose is gonna give your body your first initial taste of the virus, just in that little glycoprotein, the spike protein, and then you get more of that uh, with the boost, and then you would get even more of that if you received, if you actually became infected with the virus. So in the in-between time, you're somewhat, your yes. immunity is building, but you shouldn't consider yourself as safe as after the second dose. That's exactly right. So they've done studies in animals, and they've looked at humans as well, where you're building that immunity over time, you're generating those memory cells, and then at 21 for the Pfizer vaccine and 28 for the Moderna vaccine, you get that second boost. You then are boosting those memory cells you generated 21 or 28 days prior to then have them expand again and produce even more, so then you're building that immunity. It sounds like there's so many vaccines in development. Why are the first two vaccines that need that boost 21 or 28 days later but there are some vaccines that we're told will not. You right. could just have a single dose. Right. All the vaccines are similar in some ways, but different in others. The Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are an RNA vaccine. And in principle, an RNA vaccine in the past, the duration of that immune response and how quickly you develop that immunity is somewhat limited, which is why you need that additional boost. Some of the other vaccines, like the J&J &J vaccine, the Novavax vaccine, and others, AstraZeneca, they have a different modality of getting the, the protein into your system where you don't need that additional boost because it drives the immunity internally. So each vaccine has a different profile for how many times you need to see it in order to maximally develop that immunity. Now, my guess is that those other vaccines, you eventually will need a boost because your immunity will wane over time, and then you come in, you boost it, and then it pops back up again. When you say these first two vaccines are RNA vaccines, does that refer to the delivery system, the method that they use to give you this immunity? So that refers to the fact that they actually are giving you the RNA for the spike protein into your system, and then your body is making the spike protein out of that RNA. The other systems, they actually embed the protein itself, some of them are proteinaceous itself, they provide the protein rather than the blueprint on how to make the protein. So those are very different modalities. Why not test the vaccines in children and why aren't they approved for kids yet? I've heard some people say kids shouldn't go back to school until they're all vaccinated, but right now there's not even approval to vaccinate children from what I understand with the emergency use in under 18 for one and maybe 21 for the other. All the vaccines that have been brought through the FDA and through the histor history 
have started in a population base of 18 to 45. That's your initial population base, and then you expand beyond that into elderly, into the youth. So you need to develop that data, data set on that population to start off with. Then you basically will start to spread those windows of when you can receive that vaccine beyond that initial time period. So ultimately, these will be approved for children? I would hope so. If they're safe and efficacious, then yes. There would be no reason to think why they wouldn't. When will the question of safe and efficacious be determined for these vaccines? As people know, the emergency use, because we're in a crisis, allows them to be used before certain thresholds, I guess, have been proven. So when will it reach that state where it's no longer an emergency use? So the safety profile has already been generated. The safety profile for these vaccines are very similar and the same numbers of people that have received vaccines in the past for other vaccinations, mumps, measles, rubella, other vaccinations. So that phase three clinical trial uh, and phase one and two provided that safety data, looking at adverse events and things like that. Uh, as far as the efficacy, that's where we start to look at. You need to have a certain number of people vaccinated and then a certain number of people actually have to have come into contact with the virus to say it protected them or it did not protect them. And that's something that you develop over time and you also develop the question of, well, how long does that vaccine last? You need to look over time to see that. So it's gonna take some time for us to get there, but we got a really good start. What have we learned in the time period since my last visit here? Because we talked a lot about what we thought was ahead, but what surprises have come up at least for you in this time period? So it's interesting because right now there's a lot of talk about the different variants of the virus. and. That's not a surprise to me. Uh, viruses are evolving animals in a way. They are constantly changing. Um, they are evolving as we evolve. So that's not that that hasn't been that surprising. And I think that is surprising to some people like that. Not every virus is exactly the same. And you could have COVID and I could have COVID, yet they're slightly different. And then then the concern is, well, how do those vaccines work against those slightly different? And we can discuss that later if you'd like to. So I think, but as we're learning, I think the thing that surprised me is how quickly this has spread globally. The transmissibility of this virus is not something that I think has been seen before. Um, the lethality is not as bad as it could be, and it's not as bad as it has been in the past for other. And I think the medical doctors are getting better at treating the symptoms of COVID as we move forward. They've done a fantastic job, heroic works to actually learn about ways that they can treat their patients so that they can treat the symptoms to get them over the hump. When you say this is like something we haven't seen, I think nobody in their lifetime has seen anything like this. Not in like our this. lifetime. This raises a question that hasn't been answered as far as I know. Did it come from the Wuhan lab or does it appear as though there is a man-made component, maybe part of something that was being used in an experiment? Or have we ruled that out? No, at this point, nothing has been ruled out. Uh, we do not know. Uh, it is undetermined whether it was from a laboratory or from an environmental exposure. At this point in time, it's un and we probably never will know. Why is that? Well, it's hard to say. The, to actually determine whether that virus came from a laboratory or came from the wild, you would have to look for genetic signatures of that particular virus. And then to do that, you would have to have the earliest passages or earliest versions of that virus. 
most of the viruses that we have and are, are available to the research community are not those earlier versions. So what we're looking at is we're looking at the end of the war. What we need is a snapshot at the beginning, and we don't have that. And I don't know if we ever will. It's my understanding that we asked, of course, early on, we asked China and the Wuhan lab to give us samples so that we could make these comparisons. And it's my understanding we never got that. I am not familiar. I do not know if we received those or not. Okay. There is a sample maybe we'll get a chance to look at mm -hmm. called Washington One. Right. Wasn't really the first patient zero, but at the time, this was the first diagnosed patient we knew of in the United States, right? That is correct. So what that, does that tell us? So that tells us that that particular Washington virus strain is very similar to the strains that were in China and also very similar to the strains that were in Europe. So we don't know where the virus actually came from to get to the United States. It may have gone through Europe, it may have gone through some other country, or it may have come directly from China. We have no way of knowing. Uh, but what we can say is that version was very similar to the other isolates or variants that were in other parts of the world at that time when we first got that isolate. More with Dr. John Dye after a short break. We're back with Dr. John Dye, Chief of Viral Immunology and the Deputy Director of Foundational Sciences at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. If you had to look ahead based on what we know today, mm -hmm. would you say that this coronavirus is going to stay a feature in our environment for years? Or could it be like other things that eventually just fades away? I think that it will continue to be a feature for the near present future. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. This virus actually has a fairly low mutation rate, meaning it doesn't change drastically over time. Uh, HIV and AIDS, influenza, those viruses change dramatically in a very short amount of time. So I hold hope that the treatments that we're developing are going to work against this particular variant and the variants that are close to it because it's not changing that fast, such that we will be able to control it and perhaps we'll get to the point where it's endemically in our population, but it's endemic like other coronaviruses that are non-lethal to us in any way, shape or form. After what, 40 years, we still don't have a vaccine for AIDS, but this was developed so quickly. Is part of the problem that those other viruses, as you just mentioned, they change faster, so the vaccine may not be effective by exactly. the time it's developed? Uh, the, the virus outruns the vaccine or the treatments. But for not those with coronavirus. But not, we are not seeing that for this particular coronavirus, which is a good thing. What do we know about whether coronavirus, COVID-19, can be passed along by someone who has no symptoms? So at this point, the literature indicates that the chances are minimal, but it is possible for a person who's asymptomatic to still spread that virus to other people. It's not as common as someone who is obviously coughing and sneezing and having sputum come out, but it is still possible. Okay. Um, more in a philosophical sense or maybe policy sense, if, if you can't address this, no problem, but it seems like even in places where they have very strict mask guidelines and lockdowns, it's not working. Or maybe it's a chicken and egg thing. They're ordering these strict measures in places that have a bad problem, so it appears it's not having as much impact. But what do you say about that? 
I really don't have a comment on that because I think it's you can never tell whether they order the lockdown after it's already, it seems like we're always playing catch up. So to be able to differentiate that chicken and egg situation becomes very hard. Back to the variant, a lot of people talk about there's a different strain. Mm -hmm. You explained to me before that sometimes that's misuse of the term strain. It's it more of a variant. Can you explain what's going on and the difference? Sure. So a different strain, so it's, it's virology speak. So I don't want to get into that too much, but there has to be a certain amount of genetic diversity between one isolate and another isolate to say these are distinct strains of a virus. The number of changes that is occurring between person X and person Y and person Z and person double X is not different enough to actually classify these as different strains. Now that's a good thing. When you talk about different strains, you have a better chance of having a vaccine treatment, vaccine or a treatment not work because it's more divergent. The closer we are, if we narrow our window, and this is what we have, a more narrow window, we have a more likely chance of being able to protect against this particular isolate, this particular variant, and the other variants that come out. So it's not necessarily more alarming that we're seeing this United Kingdom variant identified in the United States. It's, it was a matter of time before it got here. Is there research being done here that could impact a therapy or a vaccine that's good against more than just this particular strain of coronavirus or even this, sorry, that's more than this particular variant of coronavirus yes. and maybe even another strain of coronavirus? That you have just nailed exactly what we need to do to be prepared for the future. So institutes like USAMRD and other institutes across the world, but right here at USAMRD, we're trying to develop treatments and therapeutics that we call pan-coronavirus treatments and therapeutics. So the idea is that if you provide a vaccine or a treatment, it would be able to broad spectrum protect against any coronavirus that we know about, and arguably we would hope any coronavirus that's gonna come out of the woods in the future. So for instance, I have a collaboration where I'm working with a company and we're developing monoclonal antibodies, so which is a treatment. It's one of the treatments that's moving forward. Uh, but we are actually not focusing just on SARS-CoV-2, which is COVID-19. We actually are looking and we have developed our treatment so that it also works against SARS-1 and also against MERS, which occurred 20, 30 years ago, with the idea that it potentially could work against things in the future, because if it works against MERS, SARS, and SARS-2. And additionally, we actually also included two circulating coronaviruses that are in bats right now in China to be prepared for the future, we would argue we would have something in our freezers that we can pull out and say, try this, rather than to have to go through the whole development process again. Um, you said that, well, let me back up and ask you the way I asked you off camera. When I looked, we have been funding research and other countries have been around the globe for years as to what to do if there is an outbreak exactly like this. And yet it seemed like at least on the news, we were just caught so off guard and started from scratch. Why is that if we poured so much money into being prepared for this moment? So there is a lot of money that has been put into these programs in the past. There are multiple programs through BARDA, through DARPA, a lot of government agencies, as well as NIH, to develop potential vaccines and treatments. 
I would say that we would not be as far along as we are with the SARS-CoV-2 COVID vaccine if we hadn't learned any lessons from SARS-1 and from MERS. So there were vaccines and treatments that were developed for those that may not work exactly the same way or may not actually work in SARS-CoV-2 or COVID, but they gave us a pathway on how to get there quicker. So I do think that we did learn from the past and we are needing to develop more for the future. So I think there are lots of things that I think we can learn from this outbreak and this pandemic about how to be better prepared for the next time it comes around so we're even quicker in responding so that we can develop this faster. When there was discussion in the spring about coming up with a qualified vaccine mm -hmm. this fast, did you think, I don't know if we're gonna be able to do that. What were your thoughts initially? So I, I'm lucky because I've been involved with the back conversations about the pathway of how Operation Warp Speed was developed and put forward. So I actually did think that we would make the timelines that we put forward uh, as far as the number of doses and how far we would be along at this point in time. But what I would like to stress to everybody is that what has been done by the scientific community is nothing short of incredible the capability that they have been able to develop in this short amount of time to provide this has never been done before. It's a process that takes years to develop and they have basically condensed it in a safe way at oper operating at the speed of safety to be able to have this product to put into human beings. And I just think it's, it's just incredible the way it's taken form. With the availability of the vaccines and more on the way, it still is something that is not mandatory. Even among the military troops, they're being offered this as an option. Is that more of a complicated equation that has to do with freedoms and civil rights? Or is that a medical determination that maybe not everybody needs to have it and we can still get this under control? I think it's the prior. Uh, we'll have to wait and see how we're able to get it under control with or without the vaccine uh, or with other treatments. But I think at this point in time, uh, this is not a 100% lethal virus, so therefore it is a matter of opinion and personal liberties as to whether you want to receive the vaccine or not. That was Dr. John Dye, Chief of Viral Immunology and the Deputy Director of Foundational Sciences at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. By the way, you can watch his interview on TV and tell your friends about it on the episode of my TV program, Full Measure, Sunday, January 17th. If you don't have a station near you or don't know where to watch, you can look for the list of TV stations at CherylAckeson.com under the Full Measure tab or just watch online anytime after about 11 a.m. Eastern Time Sunday at FullMeasure.News. That's FullMeasure.News. And by the way, I'm going to have more questions and answers on a lot of other things, including treatments and therapeutics with Dr. Dye next week as well on Full Measure and my podcasts. Thanks for listening. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.